because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, we are going to meditate on John 17, verses 24 to 26. This is our fourth message on the prayer of Jesus from this chapter. The whole chapter is a prayer. Jesus prays this prayer on the Thursday night before his crucified Friday morning. So we're going to look at his last prayer request here in John 17, verses 24 to 26, page 766 in the Pew Bible. Page 766. Now, just by way of review, in the first five verses, Jesus prayed for himself, for him to be restored to the glory he had before the world began. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his 11 disciples that they would be protected from the evil one as he is about to go to the cross. And in verses 20 through 26, we, re- we remember last week, he prayed several times, maybe four or five times for one thing, that we would all be one as the Father and the Son are one. That He prayed for the unity of the church. And that's not primarily speaking of the local church, though the local church should be united. But he prayed for a, a ontological, actual, real unity that all the saved people would be one as he goes to die on the cross to make them one. Okay? And then we spend time thinking about how to maintain unity as Paul commands in Ephesians chapter 4. And that was only the first of two prayer requests. He prays for the future believers. Because remember in John 17, 20, he says, I pray not only for these 11, but for everyone who would believe on account of their message, which is us today. Okay? So we're now going to read verses 24 to 26, the last prayer request Jesus prays in this great high priestly prayer for himself and for his people. So listen as, God, as we read God's word in John 17, beginning in verse 24. Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will make it known So the love you have loved me with may be in them and I in them. Father, we pray now that as we look at these three verses and this last prayer request, that you would do what we, what Jesus prayed, that we would be where Jesus is, that we would see his glory and that we would be filled with your love for the son and that your son would dwell richly in us. And we know none of this happens apart from your Holy Spirit. So we pray for his help now as we meditate on this prayer and we pray that this prayer would shape our prayers for Ken and Cindy, for Deborah and David, for our friends and family that that we get prayer requests from, for our brothers and sisters who are out of town and for our brothers and sisters who are suffering and even for those who aren't in this season. So help us now, we pray. We're glad, Lord. We know many of our brothers and sisters you have sent elsewhere tonight. But you have sent us here to encourage each other. And we're glad that you are here with us. We honor your presence. We welcome your presence. And now we seek to hear from you as we meditate on this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what we learned last week was Jesus praying for unity. Now we're closing this prayer with Jesus praying for our destiny. He prayed for our unity. And now he prays for our destiny. And the prayer request is in verse 24. Look at verse 24 again. He says, Father, what does he desire? I desire those you have given me. So everyone who's a Christian, 
was given to Jesus from who? From the Father. So I don't know if you think of our church this way, and you think of every Christian this way, but every Christian and the universal church as a whole is a love gift from the Father to the Son. Okay? We have it here in verse 24. For, for this love gift, he's praying for us, this love gift, and his prayer request is that we would be with Jesus where he is. Okay, so there's the prayer request. That's the final destiny. Now, we're not with him now, as we remember. I quoted it to you this morning, and I'll quote it again. Philippians 1.21 says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then in Philippians 1.22, Paul says, Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, but I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is necessary for you. So Paul tells us that as we're on earth, we are not gaining. Dying is gain because when we die, we get to be where Jesus is. But for now, we're not where he is. So as Jesus is praying here that we in the future would be with him, we have to understand that right now this prayer request is not realized for us. Now for Paul, is Paul where Jesus is now? Yes. And when we die, we will be where Jesus is if Jesus' prayer request is going to get answered, which it will. But until then, as we're still on this earth, at war with the evil powers that be, as we spread the gospel and build the church, we are not where Jesus is. And so Jesus prays, Father, as you're saving them, as they're hearing the gospel and repenting and trusting in Christ, as they're getting baptized and joining churches and making disciples, my prayer is not that they would make disciples here and then eventually go to hell. My prayer is that not only would they do good work as I save them, but that you would bring them all the way to glory. Okay, so that's his prayer request, is that Christians will make their final destination. I just want you to notice here, just because it's guaranteed doesn't mean Jesus doesn't pray for it. Did you notice that? He's praying for a guarantee here. Will everyone who's saved get to heaven? Yes or no? Yes, right? That's for sure. Yet he still prays for it. Will everyone who's a true Christian persevere to the end and remain a Christian? Everyone who's truly a Christian? Yes. But should we still pray for each other's perseverance in the faith? Yes. In other words, see, the logic of the Bible is not the logic that we like to put sometimes. Sometimes, when we know that it's a guarantee, we pause and say, well, since it's guaranteed, I guess we don't have to do anything. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, or I'll use a, this is not a Bible verse. This is a, 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 a slogan that we Baptists like. And it's not just for Baptists, but we Baptists like the slogan. Once saved, always saved, right? That's not a biblical phrase itself. It is a biblical teaching. But what that means is not that we don't keep believing to, be, to remain saved. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation, but you can think you're saved and not really be saved. You can be mistaken. You can't lose your salvation, but you can be mistaken of thinking you're a Christian when you're not. We just read in Colossians 1 where he says that Christ died to reconcile us to God if indeed we hold fast. If we hold fast, I thought everyone who's saved is always saved. Yes, they are. But that's because those who are really saved will hold fast. And those who aren't won't, might not. Okay? And so just because it's guaranteed doesn't mean we don't pray. I mean, if it's guaranteed, why do we go to church? You don't need to go to church in that sense, except for the fact that God tells us to go to church to help us persevere. That's one of the reasons we go to church, is to see our blind spots. Okay, and so you see Jesus, even though it's guaranteed, he still prays for it. Father, everyone you've given me from all eternity, I still want them to be where I, where I am in the end. 
I'm asking you, Father, that you bring them safely to the end. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is about. If you know that passage on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, verse 17 says this, Though Then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So the dead in Christ will rise first. They'll be caught up in the clouds. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then these are the sweet words. And so we will always be with the Lord. I love that. We will always be with him. Right now we're not with him. I mean, he lives in us, yes. But we're not with him in the sweetness of his presence that we will be when Christ comes again. The dead in Christ rise, he returns, those who are alive get caught up in the air, and we will always be with the Lord. That's what he's praying for here. Because right now we're not with him in this sense. Revelation 21.3 says this, Then I heard a loud voice from heaven, from the throne, saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. God moves in. Remember, we learned that from Leviticus. Leviticus, the message, the title of my sermon in Leviticus was, A Holy God Lives with Sinful Saints. He moves in with sinful saints. Because in the end, when we will be with Jesus forever, we're not going to be with him in heaven. You know where we're going to be with him forever? On a new earth. God comes and moves in with us. The Garden of Eden is where he started living with us. In our sin, we were kicked out. They were in the Holy Land, if you remember Old Testament story. They were there for several years. Then they got kicked out of there because they didn't keep the covenant. And now, in the end, when we're finally fully glorified, we'll never fall in sin again. And we will be in God's dwelling place, except it's not going to be a garden. It's not going to just be one city. It's going to be the whole earth. And God will dwell there. And we will dwell with him forever. And that's Jesus' prayer here. That we will make it there. Now why? Why is this his prayer? Okay, there's the prayer request. Let the people of God be with Jesus forever. Okay, we got that. But why? Why that prayer request? Look at verse 24 again. What will happen when you live with with Jesus? Then they will what? See my glory, which you have given me, because you love me before the world's foundation. There is a wealth of fruit here and food for our soul, just in that thought. Why does God, why does Jesus, at the depth of his desire, does Jesus love us? He does, right? He loves us infinitely. And if you say, okay, Jesus, you love us so much, what do you want for us? If you love us so much, what's, what do you think is our greatest need that you want to satisfy out of your love for us? And you know what Jesus' answer is? I want you to be with me so that you will see my glory forever and ever and ever and ever. You see, we have, I don't know if you've heard this before, we have a God-shaped hole in our heart. Have you ever heard that phrase before? We have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and there's only one person who can satisfy or fill that hole. And that's God and His glory. That's why we're always frustrated. Not just sinfully frustrated, even non-sinfully frustrated. Why is life frustrating? Because we were not meant to be finally and fully satisfied in our friendships. Now, they should be somewhat satisfying. We're not made finally to be satisfied in in the church or in life here on this earth. We were made to see God's glory in everything. And that's where we get our full satisfaction. And so that's what Jesus prays. He wants us to see his glory. Isn't that what Moses prayed and asked God on the mountain? We just sang Rock of Ages, Clef for Me. I didn't even realize the connection there. But there it is. 
Remember, Moses said, show me your what? Glory. And he says, I'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put my hand there. I'm going to block you. I'm going to walk in front of you. And then I will cause you to see my glory. And I will declare the name of the Lord. Moses wanted to see his glory. In John 1.14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then it says, and we beheld his what? Glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What is Jesus' glory about? It's about grace. And it's about truth. Isaiah 40 verse 5 says, The glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's what we live for. We live to see the glory of Jesus. Now keep your finger in John 17. I want you to turn to another passage or two. Because I want you to see how important this is for our lives. Turn to 2 Corinthians in your Bible. If you like. Again, you could just listen if you want. Faith comes by hearing. But just in case you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I quoted this this morning, and I want you to see it again this evening. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6. It says this in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, that's in the non-Christian's case, those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this, of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the what? The light of the gospel of what? Of the glory of Christ. So what can non-believer... What, what are they unable to see? The glory of who? Christ. He's glorious. He's glorious. For we are not proclaiming ourselves. Who are we preaching? Verse 5. We are not preaching ourselves, but preaching who? Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of what? Not light of the knowledge of what? Of God's glory, the glory of God. And where's the glory of God in verse 6? Where do you see the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. In the face of Jesus Christ. We were meant to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. We were meant to see the glory of God. And where does God's glory reside? In the face of who? Jesus Christ. Which is why Jesus told Philip in John 14, If you've seen me, you've seen... The Father. Barbara, since it's a small group, let's take a question or comment. Go ahead. Yes. 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 Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Steve, I don't know if you remember this, but in our pastoral search committee interview, there in the ladies' Sunday school room, you asked me about grace. And I think you said something about irresistible grace. And I told you, yeah, I don't think God twists our arm. But I did say, I don't know if you remember, I did say that when God opens our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, there's no way we're going to say no. That's kind of the heart of this passage. Jesus is so majestic, so powerful, so gracious, so merciful, so beautiful, that when, you're, when the blindfold is taken off, when Satan is pushed out of the way, or, or to use the words of verse 6, when God says, let light shine out of darkness... And the blindfold is taken away, and you see the beauty of Christ. God doesn't twist your arm to become a Christian. You run to him full speed, and you just say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I want you. I will deny myself. I'll take up my cross. I'll follow you wherever you want me to go. I have decided to, to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. I surrender all. And you're just ready to put it all in. Why? Because you've seen the glory of Jesus. And like we learned from this morning, why, why did they want Jesus to go away? Because even though they saw his power... 
to, to, to free this man from demonization, they didn't see his glory. They didn't see his beauty. They didn't see his mercy. And so here we see that we were made to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And just go back, you're in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 18 of chapter 3. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. What is the key to growing as a Christian? Here in verse 18, this, by the way, is one of the most important verses. If you want to know, PJ, why do you do what you do? Or how, what's one of the verses that impacts your pastoral ministry? Verse 18 of chapter 3 is huge, huge for how I understand the Christian life. Look at 3.18. It says this. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at what? The glory of the Lord. And when we look at the glory of the Lord, what are, what's happening to us? We are being what? Transformed into the same image from glory, from one degree of glory to the next, or from glory to glory. This is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit helps us with unveiled faces, see the glory of Jesus. And when we see the glory of Jesus, what happens to us? We get transformed into that glory. That's how you become, that's how you become more and more like Christ. How do we become more like Christ? By seeing Christ. To see Jesus in his glory is to be transformed by Jesus into being like Jesus in his glory. And all of this comes by who? The Holy Spirit. So what what do we do? We preach Christ, right? I don't know if you notice, there's a main theme in everything I preach here. And there will always be a main theme in everything I preach. It's always going back to Jesus. And you're saying, why? Don't you want to talk about something else? Uh, No, not really, right? Um, If you go to 1 Corinthians... Go to 1 Corinthians, you're in 2 Corinthians, just go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 2. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 2, um, what is, what's the mission of the Holy Spirit in John 16, verse 14? Jesus says, the Spirit will glorify me. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit, to glorify Jesus. And who wrote the Bible? I mean, who, there's 40 different authors. Who's the one author, the common author of all 40 other authors in writing the Bible? God, God the Holy Spirit, Right? And if it's God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in John 5.39, don't worry, go to 1 Corinthians 2. But in John 5.39, Jesus says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they that testify about me. The whole Bible written by the Holy Spirit. And who is it about? It's about Jesus. You know, sometimes we're taught and we teach our kids to read the Bible and say, what is God saying to you about your life? But I want you to see that there's two ways to read the Bible. You could read the Bible with you as the main character, or us as the main character, or you could read the Bible with Jesus as the main character. And I want you to see that Jesus is the main character. Now, this Bible has everything to say about our lives, but it's our lives with Jesus as the main character. Okay, so, um, and so why, why do we do what we do? 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, what does it say? What did Paul say? What did he want to do with the Corinthians? He was there for 18 months, I think. In the book of Acts, Jim can verify. But um, 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. What was Paul's main message for 18 months to, his, to the church at Corinth? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That doesn't mean he preached the same text every week. What it means was he showed them from every facet of the Bible how it points to who? Jesus. When you talk about parenting... You talk about how, what Jesus has to do with parenting. When you talk about marriage, when you talk about helping the homeless, when you talk about death, when you talk, talk about sickness, when you talk about health, when you talk about diet, and when you talk about the church, and you talk about what decisions to make, whatever you do, you couldn't talk to Paul too long without it eventually getting to Jesus. 
and Jesus Christ crucified. Jesus Christ and his cross. It always, always, always went back to Jesus Christ and his cross. Because in the cross, you see the glory of Jesus. And when you see the glory of Jesus, you're transformed into the glory of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is saying, in the end, it doesn't, the transformation doesn't stop here. When we die and go to heaven... And then when Christ comes again and when we're on the new earth, we will see his glory forever and ever and ever. And we will keep growing in our degrees of glory forever. We'll just keep growing. We'll, we'll keep learning more about him. Jesus never gets boring. Now, I admit, sometimes he gets boring in our life here. And sometimes the Bible is boring in our lives here. But it's not because the Bible is boring. And it's not because God is boring. It's that sometimes our hearts get callous. We get overly familiar with it. We think we know it. I think I know it. And so sometimes, I confess, I get bored with the Bible or bored with Jesus. But it's not because Jesus is not exciting. It's because of my callous and my hardness of my heart. And so we keep coming back and praying and meditating and being rebuked and confronted and repenting as God softens our heart to see his glory more and more. And when we see it more and more, we're transformed. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul said, as I read earlier, we proclaim him. Teaching, we proclaim Jesus, we preach Jesus, teaching and admonishing everyone so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You want to make mature Christians? Who do you preach? Jesus. That's what, and so going back to John 17, this is Paul's prayer. I mean, this is Jesus' prayer. I want them to be where I am. So that they would see my glory in, in the heaven, in the, in the intermediate heaven when we die. And then in the new heavens and new earth when Christ comes again. He wants us to see his glory forever so that we keep growing. And even now, we are to see his glory. Look at verse, let's go to verse 25. John 17, 25. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And so when we get to know Jesus and learn from Jesus, what does Jesus make known to us in verse 26? When we get to know Jesus and sit at his feet and learn and look at him and listen to him, what, do, what does Jesus make known to us? Or who does Jesus make known to us? In verse 26, I made known your name. Yeah, you're the Father. I made your name known to them and will make it known. So why do we keep looking at Jesus and preaching Jesus and staring at Jesus? Because when you see Jesus, he makes known to us the Father. And that's our heart's desire, to see and know the Father. That's what we were made for. When we were made in God's image, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we were made to reflect God in knowing him. And then verse 26. Now, well, okay, now here's the last thing, and the last part of the verse, the last phrase here. And I want you to feel, I, I kind of alluded to the sweetness of this verse earlier. But I want you to look at verse 26, and here's what I want you to think about. Why, why should we get to know the Father? Now you're saying, well, obviously we're made for that. But why were we made to know the Father? This is awesome. Why were we made to know the Father? Why did God create us in the first place? And then go through this whole drama to save us. Well, to know the Father. But why know the Father? Look at verse 26, the last, the last half of this verse. When he, makes the, when he makes the Father known to us, why? So that the love that you, who's the you there? The Father. So that the love that you, the Father, have loved me with, who's the me there? Jesus. The love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Okay, so here's, here's what, when you ask, why did God create the world? Why did he create us? Here's why. Because as God makes his glory known to us, through Jesus, as we stare at Jesus, we get to know the Father. And when we get to know the Father, the love that the Father has for the Son starts to be put in where? 
put in us. So you get to love the son as much as who loves the son? The father loves the son. And how much does the father love the son? How much does the father enjoy the son? How much does the father delight in the son? Remember when Jesus was baptized? He said, you are my son in you I am well. Please, he loves the son. He made the whole world to glorify the son. He saved us and made us a love gift to the son. The father loves the son more than anything in the universe. And that is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that love, that infinitely powerful love that creates a universe and saves the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only son to redeem people as a love gift to the son, that love that the father has for the son gets put where? In me? In you? And when we look at Jesus, we just are madly in love and rejoice and celebrate him forever, not with our weak love, we have a love for Jesus, and I, I, I love your love for Jesus because it's real. It's God, God put your love for Jesus there, but it's so small, and it's just going to get bigger and bigger forever. See, heaven is not a boring place. Unless the Father gets bored with the Son, which he never has for all eternity, you will never get bored with the Son. And the Father, the way he delights in the Son, you will delight in the Son. That's just, I feel like this love is going to be so great in us that you're almost going to feel like you're bursting. It's like you keep blowing in a balloon. It just gets bigger and bigger. And then you kind of brace yourself, right? Oh, the balloon's going to pop. No, it just gets bigger and bigger. And 5,000 years from now, it's getting bigger and bigger. And 10 million years from now, forever and ever and ever, we will just increase and increase in our capacity. We'll, we'll never love God infinitely because we're not infinite. We're finite, right? But even though we're finite, we'll just keep growing in our love for Jesus as we see his glory in everything. That doesn't mean you're just studying your Bible. You see God's glory in nature. You look at a sunset, you see the glory of Jesus. You look at your friends, you see the glory of Jesus. You have competition with your friends, and no reason to think there's not going to be sports in the new earth. You have competition with your friends, you lose the game, and you see the glory of Jesus, and you love him even more. You see people who have more rewards than you in heaven. Does that sound like a happy thing that others will have more rewards than you in heaven? At first, that almost sounds kind of sad to me. Like, there I am walking with Jim, arms wrong, and here's Jim, you know, with his rewards. And, oh, I wish I had as many as him, and I feel jealous. Well, jealousy is a what? Sin. And is there any sin in heaven? No. So will I be jealous of Jim? No. You know, when I see Jim having more rewards than me in heaven, or other brothers and sisters having more rewards, you know what that's going to do in me? It's going to make me love Jesus more. Look at what Jesus did in your life to give you all of that, to give you those rewards. What an awesome Lord. And then I'm getting happy of what the Lord Jesus did in his life. And then he sees me happy, and what's going to happen to him? He's going to get happy in Jesus too. And we're just going to keep, again, the balloon's just going to keep expanding. It's like everywhere you turn, every interaction you have, every bite of food, and you haven't had good food. I mean, you have had some good food here, but not like the food we're going to have in the new earth. Every bite you taste, is going to, you're going to taste and, and love the glory of Jesus with the love that the Father has for the Son. Heaven is going to be just the sweetest place in the universe. It's actually going to be the whole universe. And so Jesus prays, Father, I love them. Let them be where I am so they would see my glory. And when they see my glory, they'll know you. And when they know you, the love that you have for me is going to be in them and I'm going to be in them forever. Now let's think of our loved ones who don't know Christ. Don't we want them to know this joy? Don't we want to pray for their peace? It's not just so that they wouldn't go to hell, which is horrific. 
beyond imagination. And I'm not going to take time here to paint the horror of hell. But just the sweetness of heaven. Don't we want straying, professing Christians to come back to the Lord? Don't we want non-Christians who've heard the gospel to hear it again? Don't we want those who've never heard the gospel to hear it one more time and pray that faith would come by hearing the word of Christ? Don't we want to call them to repentance and faith one more time? Don't we want to fill this up again and see more people here baptized to the glory of Jesus? Not so that we would just have more members of our church, but so that when we're in heaven or the new earth, we're going to see each other and celebrate the love of the Father for the Son forever and ever and ever. That's what this is all about. And I love that you brothers and sisters are here because, like I have said last week, the evening gathering tends to be the core group of the church. And your love for God and your love for the church brings you here. And this is why you're here. I just want to remind you, if you're maybe discouraged that, that we're the few here, don't be discouraged. We're here because we love the church and we want them to know this love of the Father. And we want non-Christians to know it. And so we gather to grow even as we see the glory of Jesus. Okay, so what's the application here? I have this little... Um, I'll explain something to you as we close here. I have this little phrase I've been using. I haven't explained it yet to anyone. Actually, even um, some of my interns or those who know me well, they see it and they're just thinking, that's dumb when they look at my phrase, but it's just because I haven't taught it or explained it. But I have this phrase that I've been using saying, experience Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed that. It's in our bulletin sometimes. Experience Jesus. And that's coming from seeing the glory of Jesus. We, what, are, what is the church? If Jesus is the head, we are the what? Body of who? Of Christ. And so what I want for everyone who interacts with our church, the body of Jesus, is I want every time they come to the body of Jesus to experience Jesus. This is the closest place. Now, you, I hope this isn't discouraging you. This is the closest place to heaven you're going to get on this side until Jesus comes again, is, a, is the local church. And so I want people to experience Jesus when they interact with his body. Now, how do people experience Jesus? Here's my three aspects of experiencing Jesus. We explain Jesus, we embody Jesus, and we enjoy Jesus. In other words, the head, the heart, and the hands. In the head. How do we experience Jesus every time you come to a church gathering? I want your head, I want to fill your head with truth about Jesus. Because the more you understand about Jesus, the more you get to experience him. So we explain Jesus in this church. But not only do we explain him for your head, we also want you to see it as we serve each other. We pray for one another. We meet each other's needs. We, we encourage each other. We laugh together. We greet one another. And we just say hi to each other. What are we doing there? We're embodying Jesus. Some of you, I, I, you know, I, I, at the door, I was able to talk to some of our attenders who are not members, and they just share some of the pain in their life. And, and the, the horror of, of, even what we're talking about this morning, satanic attacks on their life. And you know what they say? What, at least what I heard today? They loved coming here. They loved being, up, being here with our people. Just the presence of us, we are embodying who? Jesus. And they get to experience a little bit of Jesus' glory when they come here. So we explain Jesus in the preaching and in our words. We embody Jesus with our love and with our service. And then, that's the head the hands, and the last one is the heart. And this is the core of it all. We, we explain and we embody in order to enjoy Jesus. Because what's the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when the love of the Father for the Son is in us, who, who enjoys Jesus more than anyone? The Father does. And when we are explaining and embodying Jesus as a church, 
we are going to go deeper in our enjoyment of Jesus. We must not let non-Christians outrejoice us. We must not let opponents outrejoice us. We have Jesus. And so we, we have no excuse to not be joyful. Even in suffering. You know, sorrowful, Paul says, yet always rejoicing. I'm not saying we shouldn't feel sorrow and pain. We grieve as those with hope. But he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because we have Jesus. And so when I say experience Jesus as the theme of our, as our church, my, my prayer there is that when people come to our church or when we interact with each other, even on a Wednesday, if we go to breakfast, men's breakfast tomorrow, if you guys want to come, my hope there is for those of us who are there is that we experience Jesus. And on a Wednesday Bible study, in interaction, in conversations after church, when anyone interacts with any member of First Southern Baptist Church of Bellflower, my prayer is that that person experiences Jesus through us and sees the glory of Jesus. Because when they see the glory of Jesus, if they're not a Christian, they might hear the gospel and be saved. And if they are Christian, they'll, they'll be changed from one degree of glory to the next. And that's what we exist for, is to embody Jesus that, we, that people might experience Jesus. So let's go forward as a church family. That's our prayer. If you want to pray for our church this week, Here's a prayer request for our church. Pray that through your own personal life, when people interact with you, they experience Jesus. And then pray that for our church family, as they interact with our church family, that they would experience Jesus. And then pray that for our association and our other churches as well. Let's pray now and ask God to do this in our church family and in our lives. Father, we thank you for Jesus. What a joy. Lord, we were sinners. We were running to hell. We hated you. We rebelled against you. We justified our sin. We made excuses. We shook our fist in your face. And yet you, Father, so loved the world that even in our rebellion, you you sent your only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What a gift that you would give us your son. And then, Lord, to, to, to turn it all around and make us the gift to Jesus. After Jesus was the gift to us, now you make us your gift to him. What a joy. And then we get to see his glory and see you, Father, and then have your love for Jesus put in us. Lord, there's nothing greater. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying. Thank you for bearing the the punishment for us. Thank you for rising. Thank you for sending messengers to save us. And thank you for giving us a church family because we know by ourselves we can't embody you perfectly or the way we were meant to on this earth. The church is the body of Christ, not us individually. So Father, we thank you for every single member of our church family. Every single member is a gift not only to you, Lord Jesus, but to us, from you, Lord Jesus. You've given every member of our church as a gift that we might through them and with them experience Jesus. And so that's what we pray for, Lord, that we would see and experience his glory again and again and again. And we pray that in that experience, through your word and by your spirit, we would keep growing in faith and non-Christians would become Christians. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.